Hello, friend. Thank you, as always, for joining me. It warms the cockles of my heart, as always, to have you here for another Tully show. I am absolutely positive you are going to enjoy this week's show, and I'm pretty sure you're going to enjoy a lot of the shows that I have lined up. I've got a bunch of guests lined up pretty much for the rest of the year that I think you guys are going to dig. I have been posting this show on more of a every other week basis. I'm hoping that I might be able to double up a little bit and make this a little bit more of a weekly thing, at least occasionally between now and the end of 2023. Of course, if you need more stuff to listen to, there's always the Jason Ellis Show. You all know that I'm on new episodes every Wednesday. There's my Patreon pretty much two, three new solo pods per week. And then, of course, there is The Deuce, my podcast with the people's champ, Jesse May Palooza. We're now posting two episodes per week. It's a combination of older episodes that we did uh, a little while ago that had been behind the Patreon paywall and brand new stuff. But twice weekly, every Tuesday and Friday, The Deuce, me and Jesse May. Enjoy that and enjoy this. An extremely interesting conversation about an extremely interesting subject with an extremely interesting guest, Dr. Julia Poerio. Thank you for being here again and enjoy. Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from an above ground basement in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully, joining me today from England a psychology PhD and faculty member at the University of Sussex. Hello and welcome, Julia Poerio. Hello. Hello, thank you so much for joining me virtually. Um, First things first, well, what is your official professional title? Yeah, so um, I guess I am a lecturer and researcher. Um, at the University of Sussex, a lecturer in psychology. So I do both lecturing uh, and research as well. Okay. And if someone were to ask you in a social setting or say on a podcast, what do you actually do? What is your answer to that question? <laughs> uh, it's complicated. Um, I do lots of things. Um, uh, in terms of research, mm-hmm. I would say that I'm kind of mainly interested in um, emotional experiences and other kinds of inner experiences. Um uh, especially those that are complex. So I use kind of uh, scientific tools to try and study um, emotions and cognitions and things like that. I also do kind of teaching and admin as well, but those are the kind of less interesting aspects of my job, I suppose, to some people. Right. So on the research side, I'm so curious, what does a day at the office actually look at? You know, I, I guess in general, it for most of us, it's easier to imagine uh a biology experiment than a psychology experiment the the teaching admin stuff i think is self-explanatory but how how do you how do you study the sorts of things that you study on a practical basis 
Yeah, so I mean, it really depends on the kind of methods we use. I use a lot of different kinds of methods. So um, we would do kind of um, lab-based experiments, which are maybe more comparable to the kind of biologist-type things, except our lab rats are are humans, I suppose. Um, So that might involve, you know, asking people to come into the lab while we expose them to various different things um, or get them to do different tasks, and we can measure their behaviour, so their performance. So that might be whether they get correct answers or the speed of their reaction times would be something that we measure. Or we could look at things like their physiological responses, so um, what their body's doing, what their heart rate is like. Or we could look at neural responses, so we could get people in an fMRI scanner and look at what happens when we show them various things or look at what their um, brain structure and function looks like when they're at rest. So there's lots of different kinds of things that we can do in kind of lab-based experimental settings. Um, I also do a lot of what's called experience sampling, um, which is when I will kind of ping people via their smartphones and ask them, uh, you know, what they're doing, uh, what they're thinking about, how they're feeling, all of those sorts of things. Um, And more recently, we've been combining that with um, activity trackers. So things like um, your traditional Fitbit. Um, and things like that to kind of really track aspects of a person's life outside of um, the experimental setting in which we often study them. And we can kind of look and compare across different contexts as well, which is quite interesting. So I do a range of kind of studies that involve people coming into the lab um, and doing various different kinds of testing and also capturing their experiences um, as they're going about their daily lives. What I'm hearing is that there's um, maybe indirect measurables, but there's more measurables than the layman might imagine uh, are, are possible uh, in, in ter- you know in terms of a psychological study because people have a hard time reporting on their own psychological state. but but their heart rate, their fitbit is less inclined yeah. to, to to lie or 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 be deluded you know, more to the point. Yeah, yeah so exactly. I reached out to you, as you know, because of this article that you wrote about the phenomenon, um, the the wild world of, of mind wandering, which as it turns out is quite a bit more wild than I'd ever imagined it was. But before I get into that, I know you also take a professional interest in uh, ASMR. Um, so I just want to ask you uh, about that. The cliche for people who, if the phrase doesn't immediately means something um the cliche example is the youtube video of the woman whispering and and crinkling things um to most of us i think to, to myself personally asmr audio it's a little uh, sense tickle at best and nothing more some people really respond very very strongly to it first of all why do you think some people respond so much more strongly and secondly what does our response to asmr stuff what might it mean? What might, what what might it tell us about the human psyche? Yeah. So so really good questions and kind of in your you know how you've described it, you've kind of hit upon probably a, a big distinction in terms of um, there's ASMR content, which is the kinds of videos that people may see online in which people are whispering or tapping and things like that, um, and then there is the ASMR response. Uh, And what I study is the ASMR response, which is this particular kind of feeling that not everybody has in response to things like whispering, soft speaking, tapping. And that can occur in real life or it can occur on ASMR videos. Actually, people who experience the sensation of ASMR 
um, usually have experienced it from early childhood, you know, when a teacher is explaining something to them and all of those sorts of things. And, and ASMR online on YouTube is just a way for people to access that experience without having it, you know, occur in real life. So what I'm interested in, in terms of ASMR is, you know, this very particular kind of pleasant response that some people have, which is often described as a tingling sensation. So often people will say, you know, when I feel ASMR, what I'm feeling is a, a really pleasant tingling sensation that starts at the crown of my head and can spread down throughout the rest of my body. Um, and it's that kind of uh, relaxation, but also it's a kind of tactile um, sensation. Sometimes um, uh, one way to describe it is like somebody pouring a warm can of Coke over your head. And it's kind of, you know, that pleasurable uh, sensation. Some people say it, it feels kind of similar to music induced chills, which is another complex emotional response that some people get um, uh, when they listen to music. Um, or things like an inspiring speech where they'll get the goosebumps hair standing on end. Um, again, that's not a universal response, um, but it is something that's kind of more complex emotionally. So what I'm interested in as a psychologist is this kind of big question of, you know, well, why is it that some people experience this really pleasant sensation and other people don't? Um, and those are that's one of the kind of core questions that underlies um, a lot of the research that I do in this area. Now, originally, this was kind of ASMR wasn't a term that you came across in the scientific literature at all. It was something that was on in online communities and things like that. And so the first step for us was to really kind of establish that people who say that they experience this, you know, sensation are indeed experiencing something, um, you know, perhaps different to people, let's say, who don't have this, who are watching the same content or experiencing the same things. Um, so in some of the first studies that we did, we looked at people's physiological responses. So we're, again, going back to what you were saying about, you know, what, what do people tell you versus what do their, does their body tell you or what these other kind of parameters? Um, and we looked at what happened when um, to people's bodies, so things like their heart rate, um, if they are somebody that says that they experience ASMR, um, you know, does their body also show us that they're experiencing something perhaps different? Um, and this is indeed what we found. So for people that tell us that they're experiencing ASMR to content, um, we found significant reductions in their heart rate, which is consistent with this idea that ASMR is this very kind of relaxing, pleasant sensation. So that was really the first step to try and say, well, here's this thing that not everybody experiences. Um, it's really complicated. We don't fully understand it, but it does seem to be a genuine response for some people. And then you can then go on to start studying um, other aspects of ASMR. To me, anecdotally, it seems like there's a gender disparity between people who respond to it. I personally encounter women who at least self-report that they respond to it. Do you find that there is a gender disparity or do you think guys are just too cool and or tough to admit that they respond to it? It's a really difficult question to answer because when we do, um, and this is a problem or an issue for all psychological research, which is that you often, when you do research, you tend to get more women take part in research. So um, it, it's kind of hard because most of the time the people who get taking part will be female. So it's really hard to say without doing some sort of representative um, sampling to say whether there is a gender difference. My feeling is that knows that there are men and women who experience this um so it doesn't it doesn't tend to be at least not in my experience i know people who experience it across all genders really 
um, before I reached out to you initially, I did a little bit of Googling on you and I, I saw a video in preparing to speak to you today. I came across the same video for the second time. For the second time, I saw this uh, very human looking robot tongue in uh, oh, gosh, somewhere. Yeah. yeah that dripped a, a really excessive amount of saliva. Any dog would be envious of the amount of saliva produced by this robot tongue. For the second time, I found myself feeling revolted and sort of sympathy salivating looking at it. What can you tell us about this disgusting robot tongue? What does it mean? Yeah, I mean, so that's interesting. So that, to give a bit of context about what that robot tongue is, so that robot tongue um, is a piece by an artist um, and it is in an exhibition that was um, at a museum in Sweden and then it also went to the Design Museum in London um, and the whole exhibition was around ASMR. So um, I don't think the artist created that with the intention of saying, you know, this is a, the kind of thing that would induce ASMR. I think it was just supposed to be a kind of provocation. But I mean, I don't know. I haven't spoken to the artist about it. Um, but uh, yeah, so I mean, that's an interesting an interesting one for me. Certainly, it made me also feel really, really disgusted um, when I saw it. And you also got that sense of, oh, it's kind of something's happening. Um, so I can't speak to, you know, what's going on psychologically without doing experiments um to test people's reactions to that um but i suspect what you might be kind of um sort of talking about is this kind of idea of um, mirroring of what's happening and this is often something that we see in asmr which is you know you see somebody else being touched and it feels like that's happening to you in a way um, and we think that this might somehow be related to what's going on with asmr this kind of mirror touch um we would call it type sensation but with the with the wiggly tongue I mean, we need to do some research on people's responses to the wiggly tongue. I think um, yeah, we, we need to because get it is that. quite yeah. extreme. Well, I'll, I'll put a link when I when I post this episode on my yeah. social so everybody can experience the disgusting tongue for themselves. It really is a treat. Um, pivoting now to the reason why I initially reached out to you, uh, mind wandering. Um, the it's actually a subject that I've been thinking about for some strange reason on a couple of different levels. I'll get into as we talk here. Uh, the subject of mind wandering i have read on in your bio estimated to occupy as much as half of all waking thought this is um one of the major areas of everyday human experience and yet most of us don't question it um it's just there it's like your your heartbeat or or like oxygen um how or why do you think you became interested in the subject um I'm interested in the subject, but I'm not interested in a, on a professional level. Why do you think you find it so captivating that you wanted to devote so much time and effort to understanding it better? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. So I originally got um, interested in the topic of mind wandering when I was doing my master's. Um, there was this really high profile paper that was published in 2010 in uh, Science, which is, you know, this very high impact um, journal that people may or may not be familiar with, but it was um, entitled A Wandering Mind is an Unhappy Mind. Um, and in that, they provided that estimate that you just spoke about, which is that if you ask people as they're going about their daily lives, whether they're thinking about something other than what they're doing, which could be classed as a kind of mind wandering, potentially, they found that between 30 and 50 percent of the time, people would say that they were thinking about something other than what they were doing. But in that paper, they also suggested 
um, that mind wandering was likely to lead, lead to greater unhappiness at a later period in time. Um, and I got interested in that because I had incidentally taken part in their research when I was an undergraduate. So they had this app called Track Your Happiness, um, which was a, a broader study where, you know, you sample people's experiences of how they were feeling and things like their thoughts and where they were and what activities they were doing. Um, and I remember thinking, oh, I'm not quite sure I believe what they're saying in this article. Like, it sounds great, but I'm not quite sure I believe it. So then I set about trying to come up with a more controlled or better way of investigating whether, in fact, just the act of mind wandering is enough to make you feel more unhappy at a later point in time. Um, and that led to a paper that was published in, in 2013, um, which basically says mind wandering in and of itself is not going to make you unhappy. But what happens is this kind of complex relationship between how you're feeling and what you're thinking about. So if you are in a negative mood or you're feeling a certain way, that tends to bias your thinking towards something negative. Let's say in your mind, wondering if you're one, if you're kind of like worrying about something, for example, and then that can further exacerbate negative mood. So you have this kind of spiral of emotion and cognition in which your mood can kind of influence the content of your thoughts in mind wandering. And then that has a subsequent impact on your mood. Um, so I really got interested from that perspective of I don't really I'm not sure I believe this to be the case. And then it kind of led to me changing my whole PhD to be on this topic and, and things like that. Yeah, yeah, my gut tells me the same thing that yours does. They just uh, there, there's got to be some relationship between mind wandering and dreaming. And if you go to work, if you, I'm sorry, if you go to sleep stressed about work, there's a pretty good chance you might have a bad dream, and you can almost feel your brain just going, "Well, there's got to be something I can be scared of or upset about. Let me let me pull something down to something that'll suit the mood, so to speak." Um, on the most basic level, why do we mind wander if we can? assume that everything that we do is something that is a product of evolution and presumably conveys some sort of uh, advantage, why is it such a core function of the human experience? Yeah, so, I mean, it's a really good question. And I think that my answer to that would be that, you know, it is the ability to mentally time travel, which is essentially what happens in, in examples of mind wandering, is very adaptive. So if you think about Imagine, you know, imagine your life if your mind couldn't be anywhere but focused on the present moment, right? Like you wouldn't be able to plan for stuff. You wouldn't be able to anticipate what, you know, what might happen or, you know, potential, you know, if you've got a job interview or something, you wouldn't be able to think through potential job interview questions and things like that. You also wouldn't be able to reflect on previous experience uh, and learn from it in different ways. So this ability to not be completely fixated on the now and the ability to go inside, think about things that have happened and things that might happen in the future um, is probably very useful for us um, as humans in order to kind of function um, on many different levels. And that could be, you know, social relationships at work, you know, even basic things like planning when you're going to go shopping to get food and all of those sorts of things. So at the base of it, this capacity for mental time travel is probably something that is very useful. Yeah, well said. But then there are people who uh, live with, or you might say suffer from um, something known as maladaptive daydreaming. And this is this is the thing about the article that um, I read that really, really struck me. 
first of all, can you tell everybody what that phrase means and what are some of the more significant real-life examples of uh, maladaptive daydreamers that either you've encountered or just are, are are out there that you've read about? Yeah. So I think it's really important to distinguish sort of typical daydreaming, which might be, you know, you're on a commute and you're thinking about, you know, what you might be doing on the weekend or you're replaying an argument that you've had with somebody. Um, and I guess when it comes to that, the amount of time that we're spending engaging in those kinds of thoughts, even if they are quite negative, um, is probably not going to be like, you know, hours and hours and hours. So distinguishing kind of typical daydreaming activity from what is now called maladaptive daydreaming, I think, is a, is a really important thing. And maladaptive daydreaming is maladaptive because um, it interferes with your ability to kind of function in, in your daily life. So um, it's often called kind of excessive or compulsive daydreaming. So this is where um, people will spend a really long period of time engaged in a daydream that is often of a similar plot. So it's a little bit like, um, you know, watching your favorite Netflix or whatever streaming services thing and keeping going back to that, except that you're constructing that. So it, sometimes it's called compulsive fantasy. So it's often around kind of not your everyday things, which is what most people tend to dream about, but around some sort of plot. And people might spend hours engaged in imagination with this plot. And they might do things like pace around the room or listen to music to help them get into their daydream. Um, they might express, you know, real annoyance if they're interrupted from their daydream or if they don't have enough time in the day to daydream. And the reason why it's maladaptive is because people can spend such an amount of time engaged in this kind of alternative world of their imagination that it interferes with their ability to function. So, you know, they may not sleep very well because they want to be daydreaming. They may not be able to hold down a job or relationships or all of those kinds of things. So there's this sense in which it's just to the excess um, that, that it then interferes with, with people. Although having said that, I do know some quote unquote maladaptive daydreamers who do not find it maladaptive because they use their imagination as a source for their career. So particularly artists, poets, writers um, use their daydreaming abilities and to kind of help them with their jobs. So it, it doesn't necessarily have to be maladaptive for everybody, but it, it can become that way for some. In the examples that you cited, it sounded like people who sort of have uh, a soap opera going on in their head and has literal casts of characters and, and plot advancements. And I was struck by, I, I once knew somebody who was diagnosed uh, schizophrenic. And I remember watching um, a Mexican soap with them and them explaining to me the ways in which their life was, well, that's my girlfriend and her father doesn't mm -hmm. want us to be together. And that person was sick and was not able to function without other adults in his family, you know, supporting him. Where is the line between a maladaptive daydreamer and, I mean, I'm not a professional, but the word I would use is a schizophrenic. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there are comorbidities um, across disorders, as you often find. So, you know, people who have anxiety often have depressive symptoms as well. And I'm not sure whether researchers have looked at the exact comorbidity between maladaptive daydreaming and something like um, schizophrenia. Um, but I think... It's in terms of kind of diagnostics, there are sort of if you're talking about diagnostic manuals, there tend to be sets of criteria 
um, that you kind of need to meet in order to meet the criteria for a maladaptive daydreamer. That doesn't necessarily mean that you don't also meet the criteria for something else, right? Um, um, and a lot of it is also subjective. So it's about the extent to which these things are causing interference with your ability to function. Um, and sometimes they might not, in which case it may not meet the criteria or it may just be, you know, an aspect of somebody's kind of functioning that they're just like, oh, yeah, that's that's just a normal pie. It doesn't interfere with my ability to hold down a job. Um, yeah, just because you have but to I don't know exactly how it overlaps with schizophrenia. I mean, I'm not an expert in schizophrenia at all. Right, right, right. So, yeah, just because you have to tap your pocket every time you leave the house for your keys doesn't necessarily mean you literally suffer from obsessive compulsive disorder. Right. Yeah. Um. So, according to the article, 2.5% of people might meet the criteria for maladaptive daydreamers. That's mm -hmm. way higher than I expect. First, I didn't know that these people existed, and then I was shocked to learn that there are so many. That means there are people listening to this that that applies to. There are people people mm -hmm. we we know. Um, I, I don't really have a question. It's it's really that common. There there's half the i mean people we pass on the road every single day are living sort of you know they they live in this world too but they're living at least part time simultaneously in a fantasy world that really is so yeah i mean it's interesting because when you start talking to people about this um some people will just go oh yeah i do that uh, is that not normal um is that not typical um so i have had some colleagues for example who i said oh you know there's this you know what are your daydreams like and then they say oh you know I go have these plots and I go back to them and I'm a really good daydreamer I love and then I'm like oh that might that sounds a little bit like this but you know whether or not it it you know it interferes with their life to the point where it's kind of they need to seek treatment I guess is a different question so I think yeah I mean it's a population estimate so 2.5%, we don't know, you know, that doesn't, you know, it, it's, I guess it's just an estimate, but I don't, I don't think it's that high, um, uh, at least in comparison, it's not as high as other kind of um, uh, disorders that you might find. Um, so yeah, I didn't think it was too high. Um, what is the, uh, we talked about dreaming a, a tiny bit earlier, what would you say is the relationship between mind wandering and dreaming there's that phase of sleep i always forget is theta beta my, my greek is awful um um as you're as as you're falling asleep but you don't know you're falling asleep and you're dreaming but you still think you're thinking until something stirs you back to alertness and you go oh that thing that i was thinking that's insane that was a dream not a thought so it dreaming is i mean is it fair to call Dream to the extent that we understand sleep before you know understanding dreaming uh, to call dreams just very elaborate mind wandering because in that case then we're all maladaptive daydreamers when we're asleep. Okay, well there's so much to pick apart there. Yeah, um, take your time. Yeah, so I mean, some people have suggested that um, dreaming is just an intensified version of mind wandering or daydreaming. Um, and there were reasons to think that that might be the case. So both both kind of processes seem to uh, involve similar things. So in mind wandering, what will happen is something called perceptual decoupling. Um, and this is where when you're in internally generating a stream of conscious thought, 
you are kind of somehow disengaged from whatever is going on in the external world. And this is like why, for example, if you're reading and your mind has drifted, you're not paying attention to what's happening on the thing. So you have reduced processing of the external world when you're doing something internally, right? Um, And that, of course, is exactly the same thing as what happens in dreaming, except that the processing of the external world is even more attenuated or dialed down. So there has to be this kind of perceptual decoupling. You have to decouple your attention from sensory processing in order to have this kind of simulation of the real world. So there's similar processes. We also know that both of them tend to rely on memory systems So whether that's kind of episodic memory, so that's things that have happened to you in the past, but also semantic memory, so knowledge and things like that. So to generate this kind of internal coherent stream of consciousness, either when awake or when asleep, you need to be relying on your kind of memory sources. So there's reasons to think that there are the similarities between um, these two processes, Um, whether or not it's maladaptive, I guess, depends on your definition of maladaptive, because many people would say that actually dreaming and also mind wandering daydreaming um, is very useful, for example, in terms of kind of emotional memory consolidation and processing and all of those kinds of things. Um, So it depends what you mean by maladaptive. um, But uh, I think many people would argue that dreams probably have some sort of function. What I mean, you you already touched on this, but what role can it be studied? Uh, the role that mind wandering plays in in creativity. I'm for some strange reason this this one thing I heard in an interview one time with the actor Alan Alda, if you even know who he is, really struck uh, st- uh, stuck with me. Uh, he's he's older. I think he might even be in his nineties now, and he bemoaned everybody on their smartphones nowadays because he said that time when you're not thinking of anything is actually the most critical that's when your brain you know when your when your computer is idle is actually when it's working the hardest is basically the idea i anecdotally do experience that i i, I write songs and very often I'll, i mean to me it's just always washing the dishes i'm either washing the dishes or, or i'm chopping something and writing a song is very often like a, a a puzzle and you have pieces of it and you're looking for the other piece and you don't even realize that part that you have is running through your head. And then all of a sudden, you have a couple times a year, there's this blessed event where the next part is just there after it, as if it had always been mm. there, hiding in plain sight. Um, if you end, I would say the majority, I mean, we all need to be on our phone occasionally for GPS or to look up a recipe or what have you, but most of us are on there sort of wasting time. The majority of the time, all of the time that we're wasting time on our phone is time that in previous human generations, our mind would have been wandering, right? Is anybody looking into, I mean, I don't know how you'd measure this, but like what is being lost by smartphone use in depriving our minds of the time to wander? Yeah, so I think there's there's kind of two separate things. I think the first is about this link between mind wandering and creativity, which there is some um, experimental evidence for, which is that, you know, if you give people an opportunity to mind wander, they come up with more creative solutions. So there is a little bit of evidence to suggest that this kind of thinking or percolation time um, is associated with some forms of creative thinking. And I think there's this kind of this common held belief about this, like this percolation almost that can happen with ideas and this idea of 
you know, being in the daydreaming state, maybe there are more kind of connections that can be made between different things, which may be more kind of conducive to creative problem solving, for example. It's really difficult to measure because you would have to know what people's individual kind of uh, problems are that they're de- developing creative solutions to. You need to be able to track the contents of their thoughts and all of these kinds of things. But I think there's this kind of this general belief that, um, you know, mind wandering can be helpful for creative insight and, and problem solving and all of those sorts of things. I think the second part of your um, question is about to what extent is, you know, smartphone use being uh, preventing us from like idle mind wandering time which may somehow be productive um and it is quite interesting because i think that there's probably no straight answer to this in the sense that it might be helpful sometimes and it might be unhelpful at other times and i know that's not like a nice straight answer right but you could be engaged with sort of some games that might be helpful for kind of trying to do things so there may be smartphone activities that could facilitate more mind-wandering type thought, right? Okay, maybe not email um, or checking the news or whatever, but just you can't just kind of pigeonhole all smartphone activities as ones that would not allow the mind to percolate or whatever. So I think it really depends on on, on what you're doing when you're engaging with your smartphone. Um, uh, But yes, there is this kind of, is our attention being kind of hijacked by these devices that we have um, when it could otherwise be engaged in something else? And again, I'd probably say, well, it depends whether, you know, it might be helpful for some people. If you're somebody who experiences a lot of rumination or intrusive thoughts, actually being engaged with your smartphone might be a good thing. So it really depends on, you know, what your whether your mind wandering might be helpful for something but i would say that if people do think that they want more time to to have that percolation time to yeah put down the smartphone have some active daydreaming time where you go for a walk or you do an activity like do the washing up more often where you think that that might kind of um simulate creative thought but it's really it really depends on the content of people's thoughts and the context in which they occur as well as what people are doing on their smartphones there's probably no you know single answer to that question no you my wife through my son has recently started playing a game i thought my wife was better than playing smartphone games and now all of a sudden she's arranging fruit on a screen all day and oh. I, she's a very bright person i find it very hard to believe her entire brain is occupied with arranging this fruit so you're right she's probably ruminating daydreaming mind wandering right. while she's moving the bananas around yeah i mean there's also some really interesting research about um how playing tetris mm. after kind of traumatic events can help you know, reduce the amount of intrusive thoughts that you have about those events. So these kinds of things aren't necessarily kind of always a, a bad thing, even if, you know, they seem mundane. Actually, they may be helpful in another way. I tweeted, I think, twice recently about, uh, I, I again, I don't know really where you draw the line between just mind-wandering of the garden variety or intrusive thoughts, but I, I was kind of surprised at how many people co-signed the frequency, uh, the regularity of the sort of experience of, once again, you're chopping the carrots or you're washing the dishes and some event or episode from the past that you regret comes to mind and it it hits you like it's a fresh experience and, and, and you cringe and you feel it in your stomach muscles. Again, operating mm-hmm. on the assumption that everything that we do 
uh, evolution deemed worthy of our time and effort, why the hell are we all doing that to ourselves? <laughs> oh, that's such a good question. I mean, the question of whether we're doing it to ourselves, uh, I think, is maybe something worth picking up on. Um, the question of like why and when do thoughts arise? Like why does something seemingly just pop into your head? Um, and this is a question that I don't think we, we necessarily know the answer to, and it's something that people are actively trying to research, but it could be that there is some trigger, some external trigger that um, then creates the thought, or it could be that some emotional state is creating the thought and that's intruding, and then we're reacting to the thought in terms of, we're saying, oh, gosh, I don't want that thought. I don't want that thought. And then ironically, by trying to suppress it, we make it more likely to occur and all of those kinds of things. Um, in terms of, you know, the evolutionary aspects of these things, I mean, I'm not an evolutionary psychologist, but what I would say is that there's, you know, everything that's adaptive also can be maladaptive. So just because a process, you know, is adaptive doesn't mean that it doesn't have you know, things that go wrong. So for example, if you take something like um, worry or rumination, worrying about something at, at a certain level is, is actually quite helpful um, because it helps you to prepare. But if you do that excessively, um, it then can tip into anxiety or OCD or these kinds of things. So adaptive processes can become maladaptive is what I would say. And so there's this kind of trajectory where it's like you get the flip side of both things like a good process can also be become a bad one over time sure yeah you can diet diet's great excessive dieting is a, is is a problem for example yeah. um i guess this is sort of a related subject or question again from your bio on the university of sussex mm -hmm. website your work looks into quote the heterogeneity i think i'm saying that correctly of mind wandering which is to say we all do it and we can do it in many different ways, and many people do. Um, and it's links to both positive and negative outcomes. We've sort of been talking about some of the negative outcomes. What might, what sort of positive outcomes might you be talking about there? Yeah. So, I mean, at least in the research that I've done, um, we've looked at how uh, daydreams about other people might be beneficial. Um, so we've shown that if you daydream about somebody that you're close to, uh, when you've been made to feel lonely, that can make you feel less lonely. So you can use your imagination to regulate the way that you feel in good ways. So let's say you're having a really tough time at work. You might think, oh, gosh, what would my partner say to me? And you can kind of simulate that. So that could be one example of like a, a po positive or pleasant outcome. So you can use your, in the same way as, you know, you might have an intrusive thought that, as you said, makes you feel sick, sick to your stomach. You might also be able to generate positive emotions through your imagination too. Um, so that is, you know, the, the flip side of that in which it can be positive. Um, it's also important to think about how you can use your imagination or your ability to simulate things um, in, to help you prepare for stuff. Um, so that is often, you know, a potential positive aspect of something. So let's say you have had an argument 
with uh, somebody that you're close to, you might then think of, okay, how best can I apologize to that person? Or what can I do? And so there, there are consequences for your social relationships too. It's also probably good to keep other people in mind. So imagine if you could only ever think about yourself, <laughs> um, you, you know, it would be really difficult to kind of form and maintain uh, social relationships. So there's lots of things involved in um, mind-wandering activity that may be helpful for things like social relationships, emotion regulation, well-being, and all of those sorts of things as well. It sounds like those things, it sounds like the negative stuff tend often, uh, I think, to all of us some of the time, to some of us all the time, occurs naturally. The positive stuff you described all sounded like things that we need to sort of will ourselves into. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it's an interesting question because I think there are probably individual differences in this. So I think that some people will spontaneously do this kind of um, the positive aspects of things. And remember that even negative thoughts can have positive outcomes. Sure. So um, it's not just that like you have to think, be thinking positively, like actually thinking about something in a negative way, but in a helpful way can be very beneficial. So if thinking about goals and thinking about obstacles to goals and all of those sorts of things um, can be very helpful, even if the content isn't, you know, like unicorns and rainbows and things like that. Um, you contributed, I think, a different subject to um, a paper entitled Age-Related Changes in Ongoing Thought Relate to External Context and Individual Cognition. I understand all those words uh, collectively, I'm going to ask you to to parse that out a little bit. I guess my question is, um, the, the title of that implies to me that it's already understood that what we think about and or how we think how we think about ourselves and 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 life uh, evolves as we age. Um, is that so? And if so, in in what way or ways? Yeah, so I mean, it's it's really interesting, and researchers have been studying this for for a while in terms of how does the the content um, of people's thoughts change as they get older. And there's a couple of things maybe to sort of sort of highlight in, and these are in general what tends to happen. Um, so um, in general, there seems to be a shift to as you get older towards thoughts becoming more positive, but also more about the past. Um, and as you uh, get older or the younger people tend to think more about the future. And this might be because as you get older, your time perspective changes. So when you're younger, you have much more of a future ahead of you. So you're more likely to be thinking about the future. Whereas when you're older, you have more of a past behind you. So you're more likely to think about the past. Um, so these are just kind of general things that people have found when they look at groups of older adults and young adults. What people haven't done is looked at one person and see how their thoughts change from younger to older. So this is just based on kind of averages of what older groups versus younger groups tend to be thinking like. I see. So somebody needs to do like a seven up, 14 up of more. Than, I mean, that would be amazing. More, more than 10 um, people, right. Yeah. Yeah. With the same people, because it's like, well, actually, does does your thinking change? And And people might be able to comment on this, you know, and say, yeah, you know, when I was a lot younger, or I used to, be, you know, think more like this or whatever. But it's it's really tracking that and documenting it that it is quite important. Um, people do report. I see this all the time. Um, uh, it's something I'd like to believe is true. People do self-report the greatest happiness at, I don't know, something like 70 years old. Is, is that not? Because I've always been... Um, 
who was, I think it was a British prime minister, Disraeli, is that how you say his last name? That, you know, whatever it is, uh, youth is a folly, middle age a failure, old age a regret. And I just always kind of assumed that that was true. But that doesn't, that doesn't, that might only apply to prime minister types. The rest of us might actually just, you might be struggling the whole time to get somewhere. Uh, Does the evidence suggest that psychologically we do ultimately get there, that the struggle ends up paying off in some sort of life satisfaction? generally speaking? I mean, it's a good question. And it makes me think of research on something called the hedonic treadmill. I don't know if you've heard of it. For sure. Yeah, I interviewed somebody about it. Yeah. Yeah. So this idea that, you know, we have this set point, and we're always going to just fluctuating about that. And we will we will get there. And there, there are kind of, you know, interventions and things that you can try and do to try and increase your kind of baseline levels of happiness in terms of how these things change over age. I'm not I'm not familiar with all the research, so I couldn't say to you, like, the research really supports this. But again, what I would say is that what you need to do is you need to follow the same people. You can't just compare the happiness levels of, like, an old group and a, a young group and say, oh, because when you get older, because you might have, like, you know, biases and samples and things like that. But I think probably people tend to fluctuate around their, their levels, and and ultimately, so you ultimately subscribe to the idea of the hedonic treadmill. Yeah, well, I do think in terms of if you're thinking about just in terms of something like happiness, um, I think there are other aspects of well-being like life satisfaction um, and eudaimonic well-being. So sort of meaning in life and things like that that may may fluctuate more. But um, yeah, it depends what kind of well-being you're talking about, I suppose. Uh, In summary, um, would you say, you know, I gather you're relatively early on in your career. Do you feel like you have an overarching goal or direction for your work personally? Um, Is there a pie in the sky scenario that you personally would want to discover or clarify or maybe even just uh, uh, communicate with the general public? Where where do you see yourself going with all this? Yeah, I mean, so we've just got... um a big grant to look at the links between sleep and mental health. So for me, what I'm really interested in in trying to understand, and this may have come across in the conversation, may not, but this idea that actually everybody's an individual um, and that we don't, we should be trying to move away from psychological models that say what an average person is like and be trying to understand people as individuals and look at how they change over time and fluctuate within themselves. And I think that when you think that way, there's much more kind of options for a precision or personalized mental health uh, care or well-being care and things like that. So for me, I try, I, I would like to see in the future a more complex picture in which it really depends on an individual Um, And that things are tailored to an individual because we look at averages and we're obsessed with averages, but nobody is average, really. Um, So I think, you know, getting more into the kind of in-depth individual aspects of a person's psychology and how things like sleep, emotion, mind wandering, all of these things relate to each other in really complex and interesting ways for an individual um, is really where it would be amazing to see research go in the future, for me at least. Great. Uh, well, by the time I post this, I will also have posted on my socials the, a link to your article about daydreaming and maladaptive daydreaming. And I'll try to remember to share the disgusting robot tongue with everybody as well. Um, in the here and now, uh, Julia, thank you so much for your time and oh, for your welcome. insight. Thank you. Thanks so much for your nice questions. <laughs>